the most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. We started the week trying to digest the horrific news from Sri Lanka that hundreds had been killed and injured in coordinated suicide bombings in churches and luxury hotels. Initially, government representatives pointed to a local terror group before ISIS claimed responsibility on Tuesday. Early in the investigation on Monday, while filling in for Libby's Nimer, I spoke with terrorism expert Phil Gursky to get his early insights. The group that the Sri Lankan government has named as a sink responsible for the attack has never done anything on this scale before. The last thing that, that I wasn't aware of the group before, I, I read it in news reports on the weekend, the worst thing they had done was vandalize some Buddhist statues. So how you move from vandal, vandal, you know, vandaling, uh, vandalizing statues to carrying out eight nearly simultaneous suicide bomb attacks, it's, that's beyond me. So it, it certainly is a possibility, but to actually say it's Islamic State, that's far too early. Islamic State hasn't claimed the attack. Right, and usually uh, they, they do, though, right? Well, they do, because if you're a terrorist group, you want to claim, or you want to say, hey, we're here, uh, we're still here, and we're still able to hit you, or we're still able to hurt you. So the fact that, you know, 36 hours later, we have no claim is a little bit puzzling to me. And this domestic terror group you reference, National Thofiq Jamath, is that how they're referred to? Yeah, but and the name basically just it sounds really like a Tamil version of an Arabic name. And it's, okay. it's, it's, the, the word Tawheed means unity or oneness, and a lot of terrorist groups put it in their name. So it's clearly is possibly a group, but as I said, I, I know of no attack that they've carried out at all, let alone what happened yesterday across Sri Lanka, both on the west and east coast, and eight different targets, churches, hotels, certainly strikes me as being beyond this particular group's capability. But then again, in terrorism, never say never. Would it be safe to say that Sri Lanka is not the place you should be looking up on Expedia to go travel to right now? Well, yes and no. Something similar happened. If you recall back in 2015, Jane, there was a massive series of attacks in Paris and France. And then the government said, don't travel to France. And I said, well, actually, France is kind of the safest country on the planet the day after the Bataclan theater attacks, right? Because there's a gazillion police in the streets, et cetera. I think this is almost like the cat's out of the bag. You know, the horse has left the barn. I can't give it any more metaphors here. I mean, it's kind of a, an easy thing for global affairs to say. And Maybe there's other information to which I, neither you nor I have access that suggests mm-hmm. there's a, something else going on out there. But, you know, look, at terrorism can happen anywhere. It's happened here in Canada. It, uh, it happens, obviously, very frequently in Afghanistan, Somalia, Nigeria, Pakistan, etc. And it can happen in Sri Lanka. So as citizens, are we going to stop going to places where terrorism is possible? And then, then don't leave your basement. I don't mean to be dismissive of this, but uh, terrorism is not limited to so certain countries in the world. It's, there's groups everywhere. We're seeing far-right groups now, and even here in Canada, who are capable of carrying acts of violence. So I, I don't think we can decide that, well, only certain countries are going to be the ones to, to avoid, because on any given day, anything can happen. But here, and here's the, the important part that your listeners have to realize. It can happen anywhere on any given day, but it probably won't. You shouldn't dictate your lifestyle based on what can happen as opposed to what will happen. Apparently, there were warning signs. Two government ministers have alluded to intelligence failures. Is that simply because they don't have the capacity in a country like Sri Lanka to be able to detect? Or it, was it just dismissive in terms of dismissing signs and symptoms? 
Really hard to say. And as an ex-thesis guy, I'm going to push back on intelligence failure. Um, you know, intelligence doesn't come wrapped up with a bow. It doesn't say, you know, on, on April the 1st, Phil Gersey's going to walk down the street at this time with this. We don't get that kind of granularity most of the time. It may have been a generic warning. And if it's a generic warning, you're left with, well, where do you put your people? Where do you put your law enforcement officers? Where do you put your armed response teams? Yeah, I wish that intelligence worked as it, as it does in Hollywood. Uh, every time I watch a movie about Jason Bourne, I cringe because of how inaccurate it is, <laughs> based on my experience working. That's for good to know. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So you know, it, it, look, Jane, it may have been a failure. The Sri Lankans will look into this. Did they? Did they ignore information? Um, did they not believe it? Was the source not deemed to be credible, or was it simply too vague and generic to actually act upon? And and hopefully we'll learn those answers if the if the Sri Lankan government releases them. I was in conversation there on Monday with terrorism expert and president and CEO of Borealis Threat and Risk Consultants, Phil Gursky. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Monday was Earth Day with a special focus this year on protecting endangered species threatened by climate change, habitat loss, poaching or other human causes. Earth Day was founded in 1970 to help educate the public on emerging air and water pollution. Now, nearly 40 years later, more than one billion people in 192 countries participate in what has become an annual event, highlighting environmental concerns when we're encouraged to take civic action. I spoke with Dr. Miriam Diamond, a professor at U of T's Department of Earth Sciences, and Jill Heinerth, the world's foremost cave diver and ocean explorer whose expeditions help us to understand climate change. Well, obviously, it's one of the most uh, dangerous pursuits that uh, anyone could be involved in. But um, for me, I'm going into submerged passages inside the earth full of water, and I liken it to swimming in the veins of Mother Earth. I'm literally in the lifeblood of the planet, swimming in your drinking water. What do you learn about the Earth and climate change from diving? Yeah, well, I've seen a lot of changes through my lifetime. I mean, I'm I'm 54 years old now, um, but within my lifetime, I've seen, you know, the the water quality change remarkably. I've I've seen, you know, the undersea life um, diminish significantly, the plants and the animals in the water. I've seen, um, you know, the flow of the water coming out of the Earth lessen in strength because we've been using too much water, taking too much out of the ground. Um, so there are a lot of things that I see as I, as I work in the north. I do a lot of work on climate change in the Arctic. Um, we see tremendous changes year to year in the, the sea ice cover in the north. Um, and it's, it's scary to see things happening so quickly. We're in the middle of a massive extinction process at the moment. Uh, and we have a very few short years to make some pretty serious changes in in the way we behave on this planet Um, because, you know, what we do in the next few years will determine the future of of humanity and and all living things on on Earth. The planet is going to be fine. It's it's really a matter of of humanity and the ecosystems um, on the planet that, that will change. So, and really become extinct. Joining us now on the line is Miriam Diamond. She is a professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Environmental Science. Tell us what kind of change you're looking forward to. Well, I'm not looking forward to climate change, but I'm looking forward to us changing our habits so that we can 
try to prevent climate change. So you believe very much in the carbon footprint. It's a buzz phrase we've heard a lot, but what does it really mean and how can we affect it for the better? Well, it means how much carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases that each one of us pumps out into the atmosphere. It's not about saving the earth. It's about saving the society and saving the way we live as we know it. It it means being able to go out into the summer without having heat distress. I mean, last year there were 70 deaths in Quebec due to um, due to heat waves. Right. It means not paying more money to fight huge forest fires that have been consuming parts of Canada every year. Mm-hmm. So many of these extreme events are consistent with climate change. And when public transit, like for instance, uh, City Council has just fully approved the King Street Pilot Project, uh, I have heard so many positive comments from transit riders, including my adult children, of how much quicker King Street is to, to traverse now that it doesn't have to stop. The streetcars don't have to stop. They're not backed up the way they were. And people will take transit if it's convenient. Absolutely. So we don't think about subsidizing our highways and our roadways because those come from our tax dollars. But we talk about subsidizing public transit. We need to talk about investing in public transport which is the best and most efficient way for us to get around. What can we do to encourage our members of parliament, our provincial members of parliament, to to make change? Oh, we can do a lot. We could do a tremendous amount. Contact our MPs who are right now deciding and implementing cutbacks to legislation that was brought in in order to curb the carbon dioxide and the greenhouse gases going to the air and how to best manage them. Our MPs need to be accountable. It's not just that they want to be reelected. We're accountable to our grandchildren. The one message I want to leave, it's not about the earth. It's about our ability to continue as a civil society with good quality of life, quality of life for our grandchildren. That means that we have to cut back. That means we have to question what it means to have convenience. It means we have to think about how we were raised as kids with smaller footprints in terms of all the resources that we used and try to get back to that day. That was Dr. Miriam Diamond, a professor at U of T's Department of Earth Sciences, and Jill Heinerth, world-renowned cave diver and ocean explorer. You're listening to the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. There is a movement underway at Toronto City Council for a vote next month on whether the Ontario Cinesphere should be deemed an historical property. The recommendation in a new report comes as the provincial PCs at Queen's Park prepare to begin soliciting ideas to redevelop what was once known as Ontario Place, home to the Cinesphere, the world's first permanent IMAX movie theater. Back in the early 70s, Ontario Place was a state-of-the-art public park, but since then, most of the park has been abandoned and fallen into decay, with the exception of the Cinesphere, where movies are still shown, and the new William G. Davis Trail and Trillium Park. So the big question is, should we recreate the retro memories we have of Ontario Place as it was in the 1970s, or should we privatize it and allow developers to create something completely different. And what about the future of the Cinesphere? 
Filling in for Libby's Nimer, I spoke with Cindy Wilkie, lawyer and vice president of the advocacy group Waterfront for All, about her vision for the Toronto landmark. There is still a lot going on on Ontario Place. Ontario Place is already in the middle of a multi-million dollar um, revitalization process. So you mentioned the William G. Davis Trail. There's also Trillium Park, which is we spent about $20 million plus on those two things. Cinefair has been completely refurbished and is busy showing sold-out movies. Um, and there's a, 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 a marina, a very popular marina there that uh, that uh, berths more than 100 boats. It's really not correct to say that, that, you know, Ontario Place has fallen into disrepair. As a matter of fact, it's on an upswing right now. 1.4 million visitors is is half of 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 what Ontario Place saw at its absolute peak. I mentioned, you know, how active it is right now because Ontario Place is a very important part of our waterfront park system. And so that needs to be one of the number one priorities is ensuring that that, that place um, as as a resource for uh all Torontonians, and particularly the new neighborhoods growing up north of Ontario Place, so Liberty Village, um, City Place, and the uh, intensification of Parkdale, those people depend on need parkland, and Ontario Place is is their uh, immediate uh, part of the waterfront. And then all of us use, uh, you know, are looking at the redevelopment of the waterfront and seeing how great it can be to have access directly to the water. Uh, the, the organization Swim, Drink, Fish has pointed out that Ontario Place has some of the cleanest water ac- across the waterfront, so it could be a big swimming hole. They would like to see, for instance, a swimming and diving uh, pier built off of the, the, at the waterfront at Ontario Place, which I think is a spectacular idea. That's one of the number one priorities. Okay. The other, of course, are the iconic parts of the 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 buildings and the the landscape, the pods, the cinosphere, the 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 actual um, contours of the land. These are all part of the the heritage uh, designation process that is very important. These have been internationally recognized over a number of years. What is happening here? Give us an idea of what the City of Toronto staff ver- wants versus what uh, the provincial staff wants for the vision of Ontario Place moving forward. The Premier and yes. the Minister have announced that they're going to uh, basically put Ontario Place uh, uh, out for an RFP to the private sector to develop some kind of a big attraction. And in doing that, they have not um, committed to preserving any part of it. So they won't preserve necessarily Trillium Park. They won't preserve Sinsphere. It's wide open for whoever wants to come forward and develop some mega something or rather there. Now, that's in spite of the fact that the province itself in 2014 recognized the heritage value of Ontario Place in a provincial statement of cultural heritage value and put it on the uh, provincial registry of heritage places as as a, a an asset of provincial interest. So that seems to have just been shunted aside. As a matter of fact, literally, the province took that statement off the provincial website as it announced that this 
you know, that it was about to to um, hand it over to the public sector to do something. Why should we keep the Ontario uh, Cinesphere other than that it is 70 years or 50 years old almost? Well, it's been internationally recognized as a uh, as a, an example, a very rare example of, of modernist uh, integrated architecture, engineering, and landscape. The Cinesphere itself is, I don't know whether people realize, but IMAX films were invented in Canada, and the Cinesphere is the first place that they were shown in the world. Right. And so it's still showing IMAX films, and it's a beautiful building. As a matter of fact, the, the province still uses an image of the Cinesphere lit up at night as a, as a key, you know, image on its website. So it's, it, it, it's a brand for Ontario, in addition to the fact that people still love coming to see movies there. That was Cindy Wilkie, vice chair of the advocacy group Waterfront for All. This is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. The Zoomer demographic is a politically engaged bunch and also have the highest attendance at the polls on Election Day. In fact, approximately 75 percent of Canadians 55 years and older vote in elections. And when it comes to CARP members, that percentage increases to 98 percent. Earlier this week, Ontario's chief electoral officer issued 13 recommendations that were designed to provide easier access to polling stations at schools. One of those recommendations is to hold elections on weekends when students are not in class, allowing for greater safety for students and an opportunity for them to get involved in the election process. The federal election is coming up in October, and this past Tuesday was a provincial election in PEI where the voter turnout is 80%. To give you perspective, the Ontario election last June saw a voter turnout of just 57 percent. Aleem Kanji, VP of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation, joined me to talk about the recommendations for change to Ontario's voting system. We also brought into the conversation PEI newspaper reporter Charlotte McCauley, while the people of PEI were going to the polls. If you look at the question of accessibility, um, you know, certainly when schools are are closed, uh, there there will not be the issues around um, uh, you know impeding children's safety because uh, they're obviously not in school. And you know, the other thing as well is that you can also uh, have children, uh, youth, and kids uh, participate in the electoral process. Opening this up and, and and you know getting kids engaged with civics and the electoral process and working election day, I think would be pretty uh, would be pretty neat as well. We've got to keep in mind, though, that the majority of, of voting happens uh, in the afternoon and, and the evening uh, time frame. And so doing this on the weekend, will it really open, open things up? Uh, it's questionable. I mean, it would put us into a category of, of countries around the world. And I can go through some of them that have voting on the weekends, on Saturdays and Sundays. Places like Italy, Mexico, Russia, uh, Turkey, even France uh, and New Zealand. Um, whereas here in North America, um, in, in certainly in the United States and Canada, uh, we have that reserved for uh, a weekday, uh, smack dab in the middle of the week. And I'll tell you something, you know, in places like Australia, where it's mandatory to vote, you could even look at this as a revenue tool for governments to impose a fine if people don't go out and exercise 
their democratic right uh, to vote. I think it should be mandatory. I think it'd be a great revenue tool for for cities, municipalities, uh, for the province, for the feds uh, to ensure that uh, that folks vote. On the phone with us is Charlotte McCauley, a reporter with Eastern Graphic Montague, weekly newspaper based in Montague. We're all very impressed with your 80% voter turnout in Prince Edward Island. Can you explain why that's the case? Um, I think it's always been like that. And I think one of the main reasons might be the human connection, because there's the, um, the districts here are not huge. So people tend to know who they're voting for fact that there are so many opportunities to vote there are you know several advanced polls and this this go around uh, 36% of the population already voted in advanced polls. Charlotte what is it about the people of Prince Edward Island that there's so I mean you you mentioned about the human connection but that they're so engaged in the political process. Yeah it's almost like a sport I guess. Yes. Yeah, they just, people always have been, and and that kind of goes all across all demographics. I was just looking up some stats, and um, in the last election, the 18 to 24-year-old, they, their voting average was 65%, so that's still pretty high. And the older you are, the more likely you are to go out and vote. So the older people in, in Prince Edward Island must, I mean, for the most part, the number could be as high as 90%. Yeah, I think the highest um, on the stats from the 2015 election was 88%, and that was for the probably 75 to 85 age group. Aline Kanji, uh, just your final comments about uh, moving the election, uh, the next provincial election, to a weekend. Maybe we give it a try and see how it goes. I think we do, Jane. And I think, uh, you know, if there are any forthcoming by-elections uh, in Ontario, it would be a great way to test uh, the waters. Uh, and to allow, uh, you know, individuals to vote. And I, I predict that we will see a higher voter turnout on a Saturday or Sunday as they do uh, in many of those countries I mentioned earlier on, on the show uh, where they have voting on uh, the weekend. I don't feel that people really have earned the right to complain about the system, about the deficit or the taxes or uh, the bad roads or the great hospitals or what have you, if they don't exercise that privilege and that, that right to, to vote. And oftentimes, certainly in, in uh, the circle of people that, that I, I seem to, to hang out with, a lot of people love to complain, but it's those same people that don't come out to vote. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. It's just, it, 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 you can't do that. And so having more accessible voting, having mandatory voting, having electronic voting, I think will... Uh, will, uh, uh, you know, legitimize uh, those concerns of those those people uh, complaining because uh, it should be mandatory to vote uh, in this uh, country that we're all privileged to call home. That was PEI reporter Charlotte McCauley and Aleem Kanji, VP of Government Relations at Sutherland Corporation. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. We've gone through the audio. Here are some of the best calls of the week. Mary in Toronto called to give us her take on what's happened to Ontario Place. I think it should go back to what it was in the beginning. You had lots of space to walk around with your family or your friends. It was so serene and, and restful. And they built those pods, whatever they're for. I've never been in one, but they just looked god-awful. You know, when you have a, an island like that where you, you have access to the water, then they screw it up again. 
And I think the prices do. I don't know. They went up to the point where I think families couldn't afford to go anymore. Tony in Brampton phoned to share his ideas on how we can further reduce pollution. We have to make drastic changes and make them now. Uh, One way to cut down on uh, pollution in cars is to lower the speed limit. Put a governor on all cars so the maximum speed limit is uh, 100 kilometers an hour on highways and in the city 30, 35 kilometers an hour. People are not going to do it voluntarily. Here's what Darko in Toronto had to say about the possibility of making changes to the way Ontarians vote. It's not democratic to force force people to vote if they don't want to vote. I've never missed a vote in 34 years. If the political parties, if you want to have people go out to vote for you, you know, maybe people are disillusioned because when they vote for you, you 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 go on your own agenda instead of what you campaigned on. That's probably one of the things. So there's a lot of disillusionment. If you want 35% of the population who, who's not engaged to cast a vote, you think you're going to get better government? Because I think, you know, we want government that represents the people and we want good government. Rudy in Toronto called in an effort to help his neighbors learn how to recycle properly. I'm a uh, coordinator for recycling for my building and one thing that really annoys me is that I see in in the recycling uh, bins, the blue bins, that there are garbage bags. There are black garbage bags and usually that that doesn't get recycled. That gets thrown out and we try to tell people and I put up signs that that, uh, all recycling uh, items should go in clear garbage bags or they should just be put in loosely into the into the the bin don't use those black garbage bags in the recycling bins and now fightbacks knockout call of the week Great calls as always, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Dennis in Brampton, who offered his concerns about the future of long-term care. Long-term care is not a choice for many people, and nor is acute care. Uh, I just see them as part of a uh, of a continuum of health as we uh, are born and as we age. And uh, as we know, Medicare is is funded as long-term care ought to be as well. I'm, I'm very concerned about the direction the current government is going, uh, which is leaning more and more towards privatization. And uh, that's a, a real concern for me. I think we should be going the other direction and looking at the not-for-profit model. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays at 416-360-0740 on Zoomer Radio, AM 740 and 96.7 FM in downtown Toronto. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightbackzoomer.ca and follow us on Twitter at FightbackLibby. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again tomorrow at the same time when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Michelle Saunders, Justin Eacock, and Kelly Robotham. <laughs> 